Broadcasting live from Black Panther, the waste of water, this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Seamus Connolly. And I'm Garrett Strother in my temporary Thanksgiving recording studio that I'm sure sounds echoey to all of you at home. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the dissonance between our audio qualities this week is going to be fascinating, but it'll make for interesting, it'll make for interesting podcasting, I think. I apologize for a Rocketeer revisited situation here, but... Anyone um, who gets that is a real OG fan of this show. <laughs> Anybody who understands that at all. Uh, yeah, that's true. It's very true. <laughs> but we're going to jump in with some news before we cover our Black Panther Wakanda Forever main segment, plus a double up on Andor's since we've been dormant for a week or two. Yeah, starting up top with... The very sad loss of Kevin Conroy at age 66, the voice of Batman, most famously in Batman the Animated Series. He has been doing Batman since 92, since since Animated Series started, and something I really love about Kevin Conroy and have always had an affinity for about his performance is he's a very prolific Comic-Con attender. I don't know if you know that, Shameless. Oh, I actually didn't know that. But he goes to, or he went to, a lot of different comic cons, not just the big ones. And you would often hear him speak in interviews or at these panels about his relationship with Batman. And I think he has a really interesting, very traditionally theatrical approach to the character that Mm. makes him so resonant and so powerful. And that he basically had no idea who Batman was in the 90s when he walked into that interview (laughs) And I think that allowed him the freedom to pull on all these other influences that weren't Batman, Scarlet Pimpernel, and Hamlet, and Robin Hood, and not thinking about it as a comic book hero, but thinking about it as this tragic story of a man so overcome with guilt and rage that his mask becomes his true self. He is widely considered, I think, to be the definitive Batman yeah, I would probably agree with that. Any any time you go back and revisit any of his works where he is Batman, they are incredible. Like for some reason I always underestimate how good Batman the animated series is until I get into it again and then I I just am washed over with the absolute talent behind every sector of that show and he is no exception at all. Like you were saying the deep dark it's almost like depression batman in his voice in a lot of of those takes that gives me a little more depth to something that is like a short form batman that has that longevity in that larger series that i don't know if i can find in any other even like a live any of the live action batmans like there's no contest really i recently rewatched mask of the phantasm which is one of the first things we ever covered on this show. I think that was literally our second episode. Yeah, episode two, yeah. And it still really holds up, and a big part of that is because it is the most holistically Bruce Wayne has ever been written in a Batman movie, I think. And a big part of that is because of is because of Kevin Conroy's performance and the way that he is able to bring so much emotion to a character who is kind of inherently inhuman. My my favorite portrayal of Bruce Wayne outside of Kevin Conroy is definitely Michael Keaton, and that's because he's a crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally, I totally know what you're talking about. Phantasm, everybody should go watch if they haven't already. If that's not like the moment of addiction that you catch with the Batman animated series, then I don't know what is. It's truly, purely incredible. And I know it has a specific point in the animated series chronology where it takes place, but I think really you could watch it at any point. It's kind of yeah. the origin story for that ca- for that version of the character anyway. Yeah, you know what Batman is? You can jump into Phantasm, I think. But we do have to move on onto some other bits of news, including this week's Warner Warning! Does, does the Warner Warning sound different to you? That's, that's so strange. Yeah, what the hell is that? Oh, no. It's because it's Disney, the House of Mouse. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. <laughs> They're here for us, finally. But in in a move that seems very much in the vein of the current instability over at Warner Brothers, Bob Chappick, the CEO of 
Walt Disney has been replaced by the board effective immediately with his predecessor, Bob Iger, who stepped down not very long before the COVID-19 pandemic rocked the world and (laughs) shut down life as we know it. Um, I wonder if those two things have any weird correlation. Nah, you're just overthinking it. Seamus, what do you think about having Iger back in the driver's seat? In the driger's seat, as it were. (laughs) Um, I, I... I don't know, really. I guess I think I need to see the post-COVID Iger, his, his, if he's coming back hard or if he's just going to kind of take it easy and, and complacent with what they know is working out now. I, I, I guess this, this is so sudden. I have never been a, a particularly big fan of Iger. I liked him more than his replacement, certainly, but I also think that that Chappick was given a kind of impossible task to navigate. Not that he hasn't made a lot of really bad decisions, and we've covered mm. most of those on this show. <laughs> yes, we have. But Iger has this kind of unfeeling, unwavering commitment to the bottom line that is largely responsible for this autocratic, monotonous cultural landscape that we find ourselves in. And I think that a lot of the things that are kind of being put on Chappick's shoulders are are fallout from Iger's policies over the last 10, 15 years. I'm just really hoping that we're not going back to, not that we ever left it, I guess, but this whole policy of whatever's making money right now, we put all the money into that. And until we get sick of it, we're we're going to smoke the whole pack of cigarettes that we got caught smoking, <laughs> and then we're going to vomit, and then we're going to move on to the next thing. Yeah, not the best way to run an entirely imaginative sector of, you know, like, Disney is everything now. If, if we're just going to get back to the amalgam of Disney through this again, I'm, I'm going to... I guess just lose interest again. I feel like I I wash it away. I just tuck it away into a drawer when it gets too annoying for me, and then I I care less. Which I guess I should probably care more at that point. But it's I don't know. It's like a smokescreen. I I just kind of get lulled into it until I don't care enough to notice as many of those bigger, less fun decisions that Iger is known for. So yeah, I, I'm very curious about what kind of shakeups are going to happen. I'm very curious about what happened to prompt such a sudden ushering back in of Iger. Because it's not like they fired Chappic and they brought in a new CEO who they'd been searching for and vetting and all this stuff. It's like, oh no, we need to get Bob back real quick. So I don't know. I feel like there might be some imminent fallout happening. I'm very excited to read whatever Variety or Hollywood Reporter big expose comes out soon. Yeah, and real soon, I'm sure. Again, this is so out of the blue. It feels like that we're gonna we're gonna be gathering a lot more information about this huge, major decision to switch Bob's, probably within the week. <laughs> uh, it's it's the Bob Shuffle game. <laughs> it truly is. We'll see if they enter a third one. Bob from Top Gun Maverick. He's the new ah, Disney. That's what CEO. I was thinking. That's what the Warner warning is gonna sound like this week. It's just a di- distant Bob, 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 Bob. <laughs> Um, well, speaking of, of Mr. Robert Iger's penchant for reboots, 20th Century Studios, a Disney property, has tapped Radio Silence, the directors of Ready or Not and Scream 5, to direct the upcoming Escape from New York reboot, which I'm assuming is kind of in response to the success of Prey on Hulu. You have actually seen the movies that that Radio Silence is known for here. So what what are your thoughts on this? I, I know you speak highly of, of Ready or Not, and I know you enjoyed the newer Scream, but I'm I'm still kind of in the shadows on, on Radio Silence right now. I I don't know. I don't know. I wish <laughs> I wish I felt like John Carpenter cared at all. And that's not a knock on John Carpenter because he is executive producing this new movie, but also, you know, I understand John Carpenter was paid. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, Nothing about their work in any way screams, no pun intended, to me (laughs) that they would be a good choice for an Escape from New York reboot. If anything, I think Lee Wannell, who did The Invisible Man and Upgrade, Mm, would be mm. a better choice. Yeah, I was going to say, like, the. I don't. I haven't seen Ready or Not or Scream 5, but those are 
definitively like horror comedies, right? Like I I don't know specifically about Scream Five, but Scream has always had a very healthy layer of ironic humor around everything that happens canonically in that series. Scream Five is one of the more meta entries in the Scream franchise, which is saying something. So. I was gonna say. <laughs> Yeah, I don't get it. I don't. I think they would have been more suited to a They Live reboot, not that they should do that, or another Halloween movie, not that they should do that. <laughs> I or, would watch a They Live reboot, though. Honestly? Once again, I, we adamantly should not do this, and I understand the Rocks version <laughs> is dead, but they'd be better at Big Trouble in Little China sure, than sure. Escape from New York, I oh, think. Oh, man, I forgot about that whole Rock reboot of that. <laughs> I was about to pitch The Rock and John Cena in the, the They Live reboot just to keep the wrestlers up. But, I mean, Escape from New York, I think this is a thing that both of us are very attached to. Both of us have very specific ideas about where we want that franchise to go, if it is continued at all. I'm curious, I guess. I'm, I can absolutely definitively say that Escape from New York is probably my favorite movie. Just in terms of, like, I could put that on at any moment and I would be happy. I could I could watch it and then instantly rewatch it again after credits roll. If someone's like, oh, I've never seen this. And I'd be like, well, we're watching it now. So any, anything will be at least interesting, but you know, I'm, I'm not going to hold my breath for like top notch quality, like, like a, like a Top Gun Maverick situation where things are like way better with the modern lens reviewing it. So yeah, I just, I don't know what I want from this. I don't because you could bring in Wyatt Russell, but then what's the point? Because then you're just vainly trying to recapture Escape from New York. You could do a legacy reboot. You could do Escape from Earth. But I I would rather have Carpenter do that. I would rather it be a video game with Kojima mm. involved or something. Oh, I don't God. think I would. Could you imagine? You could do Emily Blunt. You could do the gender swap thing. I think that is probably that the most cool. interesting way they could do that. You you know my my need for them to revisit Escape from L.A. in some capacity to redeem it. I, I, I think that is the more ripe area for them to have the absolute insanity and no boundaries to just, to just really re-go re at it and make us like it more. Uh, when... When when Snake Plissken has to have his big showdown on Main Street USA at Disney, <laughs> dude, I love that with all the hang gliders Wait, and stuff. They could, they actually, literally could oh do that God. now, dude. That could you imagine the? Because there's already a lot of weird meta stuff with Escape from LA. The the amount of self reference that they could do with a with a reboot or some kind of addition would be delicious. It would be so fun. I am interested in this. I just am very, very skeptical going forward. Yeah, same here. Same here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch it immediately. Oh, we'll that, be there opening night. <laughs> I guarantee it. If this but movie that, gets made, but my fear for what it will be will stand until credits roll. Agreed. Uh, and, and speaking, speaking of <laughs> fear for very disappointing, highly anticipated sequels. Should we move on to our main segment, Black Panther Wakanda Forever? Oh, I have many thoughts, Garrett. Let's do it. For today's main segment, we're going to be talking about Black Panther Runtime Forever. I mean, Wakanda Forever. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Garrett, as one of the more, I was going to say highly anticipated, but like, as one of the anticipated MCU <laughs> properties that we were, you know, actually in for, what 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 were your thoughts after this? Uh, spoiler free. What what having a little bit of time removed to to kind of simmer in it. What what are you thinking about Black Panther: Wakanda Forever? I think that having seen this almost two weeks ago now, because you and I rushed out to see it so we could record the <laughs> podcast and then weren't able to schedule the recording of the podcast. It's it's shocking to me how little I actually remember about the movie. <laughs> I went back and I reread the Wikipedia synopsis and read up on the characters, and I was like, oh yeah, that did happen. But <laughs> this movie is way too long. It's way too bloated. It doesn't feel coherent in any way. And like the first Black Panther feels incoherent, but it feels like two distinct entities are vying mm. over the control of that film. It feels like there's the movie that Kugler was making, which is a smart, action-oriented, kind of espionage, political 
film, even though if the politics are more on the side. Sure, sure. And then the the standard Marvel giant CGI beat em up. We got to have the CGI rhinos in the third act movie. Oh, yeah. This movie is like 15 different movies, and not in the way that Black Adam was. It's it's just that every scene, the tone changes, I feel like, in, in Wakanda Forever. And the tribute stuff to Chadwick Boseman I thought was very moving. There were, sur- there were some things that I'm a little bit kind of eh about a- after reflecting on it for a while that we'll sure. talk about in spoilers. But in terms of the main conflict, I found it very difficult to become invested. I did think that the performances overall, including infamously difficult to work with Letitia Wright mm. were, were good. I didn't get enough of the characters that I wanted to see, which is weird for a movie of this length, and that it meandered in such a way that left me very disengaged. What about you, Seamus? I can't agree enough with you with what you're saying. The length was, you know, it's a Marvel movie. I, I went in knowing that Marvel movies are long, especially when they're trying to make it, like, a, one of the more important more Marvel movies. But I just couldn't find myself finding something or someone to actually care about in this movie, you know? Like, I I feel like I wanted to care a lot about, like, the, the main plot stuff. I think a lot of the memoriam things they did for Chadwick and Black Panther as a character in the movie itself were done beautifully i i was very moved by by those scenes in the beginning and and a lot more towards the end when they were like showing flashbacks and again those the grievance performances the the performances given throughout about like the actual raw emotion for losing somebody that you consider your brother i know a lot of them very much did but everything in between the real actual plot the threat the bad guys themselves the special new characters that they're introducing, I I just couldn't possibly find myself caring throughout the entire thing. And there are really good moments of this still. I'm not going to say it's an entirely bunk movie, but I would venture to say this is like bottom five Marvel movies for me. Like, I know that might be saying something considering how much people are gushing over this movie right now, but I, I don't think I could ever see myself really coming back to rewatch this for any reason. I definitely would not go that far. Yeah, I, I knew that you wouldn't quite agree with me on that, but I just... I, even other Marvel movies I have problems with, I, I, I find myself caring at least a little bit more about the actual plot, but this one, it just felt like it was... <laughs> it almost felt like they were buying time between the original stuff, where they how they open up the movie and all the heartfelt Chadwick stuff, and the end heartfelt Chadwick stuff. I just felt like they, they were filling four hours worth of Marvel things that didn't really matter to me. It becomes very clear, and I've read about this in the time that has elapsed since we saw the movie, that Kugler had written a full script with, with Namor or Namor, whichever one you want to call him because the movie can't decide. <laughs> what, do, they, do they flip-flop on that? They I do, probably... because anytime he says his name, it's Namor. Because, like, spoilers, we'll get into that. But then <laughs> sure, sure. anytime the Wakandans are talking about him, they're like, Namor! Namor! <laughs> like he is in the comics. I know that this was a movie that was written with T'Challa still in it, with a very different approach in mind. Mm. And then they kind of had to lay this other movie on top of it. And I think that there are some of those things that were changed that were very effective. But on the other hand, I think they probably should have given Kugler enough time to completely overhaul this story because it becomes clear that it's a movie that was written one way and then changed to be another way. Mm. I think structurally you feel that dissonance. Yeah, I you definitely do. You know, I and our theater wasn't like super packed or anything, and I feel like maybe with a full excited <laughs> crowd. But the kids that were excited in our crowd, oh yeah, <laughs> we were more annoyed by, and that's not their fault really. But I think that we were so nonplussed that them be like when there would be a classic Marvel, you know, vision lifting Thor's hammer moment, and we were just sitting there like, huh? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, and they yeah. were like, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, just fully standing up in their in their. And I mean, like, God bless them. I I didn't want to talk too badly about this movie right after we finished it either. I'm not trying to ruin it for any children who enjoyed it, but like, as an adult who likes movies, I was just not really having it. I agree. I completely agree. And I think to to kind of to do a post mortem autopsy <laughs> on this on this dud. Or not complete dud. That's the thing, though. I think we should probably move into spoilers. I think we really, really should. I've got. I know. I know we've got both got a lot to say. I want to start right off the bat, just so we don't have to talk about her anymore. Riwi Williams, <laughs> Ironheart. I had no problem with the way they were approaching her. I felt like she had no place in the story as it was written, and every time she was on screen, it was just a distraction. 100% agree. I was that honestly. Ironheart was the thing I was one of the most excited about for this movie. And I was just like, whatever. The Ironheart suit looks real goofy. I, I even prefer the prototype Ironheart suit, you know, with all the wires and stuff hanging out, just like the weird mech suit shell that she had going on. But once she gets the Ironheart Prime, I was just like, this this doesn't, this isn't anything. What is even happening here? This is the unfortunate endpoint of the nanotechification of the <laughs> Iron Man suit throughout the Marvel franchise, I think, where we've hit this limit where it just looks like some kind of weird cartoon. It doesn't look physical in any way. Yeah, that there's a the whole third act fight showdown between the Wakandans and the Atlanteans in the middle of the ocean just looked insane to me. Like, I would say like oh it looked like a video game but it was even more distracting than like a video game cutscene level cgi mishmash to me it is a worse third act than the first black panther and that's saying something unfortunately because that's by far <laughs> the worst part of that first movie the one part i did like was when spoilers i we're really starting at the end here um <laughs> shuri becomes black panther and she runs along the side of the ship and, like, is cutting people down off yeah. ropes and stuff. I thought that was pretty sick. Oh, yeah, I can get behind that. I mean, right up until a few minutes later when people are being straight up impaled through the chest, nary a drop of blood to be seen. And I know it's a Disney thing. I know it's PG-13 or whatever, but, like, but she it, gets impaled. She it walks makes away. It makes it feel so weightless that, they're like, I don't care Seriously. when people are getting impaled. I'd rather them just not get impaled because there's no gravity to it. We're kind of jumping from the very end to the very beginning here where the very first thing that happens is an incredibly emotional off-screen death scene of T'Challa where Shuri is desperately trying to synthesize the heart-shaped herb that is going to, I guess, cure him of the mystery disease that he has. And it's like they started with the absolute, one of the most impactful, real emotional moments in, I mean, the MCU as a whole, this phase, whatever you want to call it. I was pretty shocked that they were going right away, right off the bat, and doing it in a realistic to how, I mean, realistic, whatever, Quote unquote. When she's trying to 3D print organic <laughs> matter in her fancy vibranium lab. I'm more saying, like, the parallels of Chadwick Boseman died from a terminal illness and so did T'Challa in this in this way that really breaks down these characters to the in the beginning in where their emotional state is kind of hovering throughout the entire movie. And it's like they started with that impact and then everything else in the entire two and a half hour movie was like left by the wayside. They're just like, well, we did the important part and now everything else, the stakes are lower and, you know, things are less important in every way because, I mean, I pretty much knew no one else was really going to die. Nobody major was really going to die. Well, well okay. is that well, <laughs> true? Is that true at all, Seamus? <laughs> one very specific uh, death that I was not, I did not see coming was... Um, Ramonda? Ramonda, I believe, is Queen correct. Angela Bassett. Ramonda? Angela Her, Bassett died. One of the more powerful performances in this movie, I will say. Her scenes in that, like, UN tribunal thing where she's marching out the German mercenaries that tried to swat a Wakandan laboratory. And I, I thought that was very well done. But that was probably the only other real highlight moment for me, character-wise, in this movie <laughs> 
until we get to like the the car chase things and the the brief introduction of Ironheart that I actually was kind of in for until they get off the bridge and Shuri is kidnapped and and all that stuff. I think the first 20 minutes of this movie from that really effective opening scene you were talking about through T'Challa's funeral and the whole sequence where the Germans are attacking and <laughs> then the Dormelage come in, take care of business, back to the UN. I think that's all great. That's when the tone really shifts. That's the our, that's our first big tonal shift, mm-hmm. I think. The biggest culprit of all that is uh, our friends who shouldn't have been in this movie, Martin Freeman and oh, yeah. what's her name, Julia Louis Dreyfus's character, <laughs> who are a weird bickering married couple. Like I think this is something that Marvel's been doing a lot lately. Of they spend a bunch of time building up some kind of imposing threat and then they show up and they're just nothing there this is what it's what hawkeye did with kingpin they, they spent all of hawkeye building up to kingpin to reveal him in like a cell phone photo and have him sit in a room in the finale and talk for a minute they've been slowly planting julia louis dreyfus not that she hasn't been funny in her in her appearances but mm. she is imposing through Black Widow and Falcon the Winter Soldier and other things that I can't remember right now. Then she shows up in this and she's just like a comic relief subplot that has truly no impact on the rest of the film. Yeah, the the mystery behind her character. Like, I, I was viewing her as this, like, she could be anyone. She could not, e- you know, she might not even be a human or like a, some kind of... Uh, you know, hidden powers or whatever. Like some shadow. kind of X-Files thing. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe, hell, she could have been an X-Man for all I know. You know, it could have been something real, real wild. But now it's just, there's a throwaway line where it's like, oh, when we were married, Martin Freeman, this would have never happened or something. And now it's, she's so human to me that, the, that mm-hmm. even with the mystery that remains with that stuff, the team that she's building... I'm, I'm I'm a little deflated with with how they did that with her. Yeah, because they're she's clearly assembling the Thunderbolts, which has officially been announced now. I don't care. I didn't care about the Thunderbolts to begin with, but now I really really don't care about the Thunderbolts because what are we even doing here? Yeah, I don't know. And we were when the um, Secret Invasion trailer came out, we were like, "Oh, Martin Freeman, he's on the run. What did he do?" And now, when that stuff is gonna come up in Secret Invasion again, we're just gonna be like, "Wow, oh, yeah, right. That that weird, lame subplot where they just keep running into Martin Freeman, where he ultimately just kind of he's just kind of a patsy. Like nothing really comes out yeah. of his character involvement in all of that Wakandan stuff." If I felt like any of his stuff in this movie had been setting up something cool for Secret Invasion, I would be a little bit more okay with it, but it's not cool. He doesn't do anything interesting Ugh. in this movie. He is way more interesting in the first movie, and he's not yeah, very interesting in the I first know. movie. I know! Oh my god. Well, did you know that the Wakandans saved his life, Garrett? Did you know that? Wow. Did you know that he... Isn't they, that they, crazy? His life was saved by them, and he owes them so much? Um. Did you know that... Lupita Nyong'o is completely wasted by this film. Uh, I did know that, Garrett, weirdly enough. <laughs> I, I agree with that. My God. She is one of the best parts of that first Black Panther movie, and she was who I, going into this, was really hoping was going to become the Black Panther. Not that I wanted Lupita Nyong'o to be locked into 10 more years of Marvel stuff. Because like, How cool would that have been, though, right? Like that, that At least it would have been a more interesting twist on how they were taking the new era of Black Panthers in Wakanda because now it just feels like oh we had this we had this time of of great sorrow and and you know now we're completely defenseless and now it's just like oh we're right back to the regular version of everything that we were sad about so it's fine now because they kind of try to do a thing with Shuri similar to what they do with Killmonger and T'Challa in the first film where her and Namor have this relationship where Namor is able to impact her ideologically and have her change her mind about certain things, certain policies that Wakanda has. And it's just not nearly as effective as it could be. The thing that I like that they hinted at a little bit, and I don't know if it was written to be this way, I don't know if it was just on the day that they had this chemistry, but but when Namor takes her down to Atlantis mm. and we have that whole sequence, which is frankly underwhelming... <laughs> 
they have a connection. They have something that feels kind of like romantic tension. Oh yeah, definitely. And I really wish that they'd done more with that because that would have been a way to make things a little bit more interesting. And it's not to say that Lupita Nyong'o, going back to her for a second, doesn't do really well with what she's given, the few scenes that she's given. But it just doesn't feel like anything is going on with her. She's not the focus in any way until the very, very Mm -hmm. end. And even that feels kind of tacked on because it's revealed that she and T'Challa had a child and that's why she's been MIA from all the other movies that she didn't contractually sign herself on for because she's an Academy Award winner. (laughs) Of course, gotta do real movies sometimes. I wish that her not being more of a focus had been giving way to something more interesting being done with Shuri, something more interesting done with Okoye, who I think is a great character, and the one good scene that she she gets two good scenes. She gets a great action sequence, which is the best action sequence in the movie, which is the whole car chase, motorcycle mm-hmm. chase thing. Totally. And then she gets the scene where she gets banished by yeah, like expelled Ramonda. from the from the Dora Milaje, like stripped of her ranks and like sent out of the kingdom. I think that's great, but most of her stuff is weird comic relief with um Michaela Cole, whose character was hyped up a lot in the advertising for this movie and then literally did nothing in it. Oh, I really was hoping that she was going to step up in this because she's great. I yeah. I love her. And then they like just do a half-assed like, oh yeah, sure he gave me these daggers bit. And then like, that's it. It's crazy to me. Same thing with M'Baku, who's a character that released it out yeah. from the first film. Again, we have this great cast of characters from the first film. And I remember when, when Bozeman died and we were talking about how sad it was, but also that Black Panther, it was kind of fortuitous that they had all of these other characters that we were so invested in from the world of Wakanda. Not that Wakanda the world was was very well fleshed out, but the characters were in the first film. Mm-hmm. And this giant pantheon that we have is ultimately wasted. There's really nothing done with them, and they they focus on new characters that aren't nearly as interesting or, or take interesting characters like Namor and don't do very many interesting things with them and it just makes it makes me sad Seamus I I agree man I think that they're buried within the movie that we got there could have been a beautiful rewrite that highlighted all of the characters that would have made this story any form of you know enjoyable in it as a whole but it's so bogged down by how much is going on and how little of how much is going on actually feels like it matters that it's it's like you were saying, you you forgot about a lot of the stuff that happened because it just didn't necessarily matter. I, I'm a little sad that everyone is hyped up for, they're like, oh, we finally got a villain that's like worth a second movie or whatever. But even Namor, I feel like, was flattened by a lot of the peripheral things around him and the introduction of, you know, his people and all of the other things that seemed like they were far less important than, you know, the thing that they were actually focusing on there. I'm, I don't know. I, I underwhelmed is an understatement for, for this movie. And even like the Michael B. Jordan stuff, I feel like could have been huge, could have had major implications on Shuri as a character. But even like the, you know, our 20 minute fake out of like, she goes into her afterlife visions and he is like kind of almost convincing her that the reason that he is the vision that she sees is because she wants this kind of revenge or she has these this unfinished business within her that is going to bleed out into her role as the black panther but then they just kind of shelf that and she's like whatever just noble regular ascending to the black panther with no problems when it seems like that could have been a really interesting way to have her struggle with that role more than what they did. Because, again, that was, like, <laughs> the very end of the movie, I feel like. Like, wh- two hours into this movie, we get all that, and then it doesn't really matter anyway in the end. Yeah, they did not do enough to convince me that she was teetering on any kind of moral edge. Yeah, I mean... Again, uh. the impalings have no weight. The violence has no weight. So even the violence that they do have her committing doesn't feel like it matters. It doesn't feel like it's any more important than when she 
when she gets stabbed and walks it off. <laughs> um, I'm also uh, going to apologize to anybody who can hear on mic the, the nice um, bass trap music that's coming from a room <laughs> nearby. What do you what do you what do you want to say about Black Panther, Seamus? Uh, I feel like I'm one thing that sticks in my head that they tried to personify Ironheart as like this Chicago girl and like they do like oh she's got like a Chicago Bulls pillow in her dorm and like a Chicago flag hanging over her window. And then at the end the like they're like, okay, yeah, Chicago Bulls, sure, we got a reference in there. And at the end, the only other thing that she says is like, hey, come to Chicago sometime, we'll catch a Bulls game. And I'm like, do they know anything about <laughs> Chicago? Like, are they going to do anything with that? I I'm, I, I was a little disappointed that, I, I guess I'm a little disappointed in Ironheart as a whole, but that also just kind of made me laugh that they just used the same Chicago reference twice. I did see today, actually, that... They have filed a bunch of permits for the loop and mostly the north side of Chicago for filming the Iron Heart oh. uh, series, Disney Plus series. How far north? Not very. Not to you. Damn it. No. <laughs> even even though I didn't love her in this movie, I, that would have been cool to see. But I don't know. Maybe they'll. <laughs> I'm just gonna fly through the United Center once an episode in that show and just rub the Michael Jordan statue or something. There you go. Perfect. Holding up a sign that says, I'm Union. Exactly. Exactly. Speaking of locations, though, I am frustrated that I really hoped Wakanda would feel more like a country in this. Oh, and not like a completely CGI'd green screen set for pretty much the entire time they're in it? Once again, Wakanda feels like the, there's the palace, and there's one street in Wakanda, yeah. and then there's just fields, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, it, it is It is fairly distracting when it's... Because they're... They do. What is it? I keep forgetting the name of that stupid thing they use all the time now. The view, the 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 volume, the volume. Yeah, the view with <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg's coming on. <laughs> I think I think it's so much more noticeable now than it ever has been when they're just like straight up standing of like six inches in front of it. You know, it's so it's so noticeable. Yeah, I th- there are examples of really good uses of the volume, I think, that we can talk about here in a minute. Uh, but first, we're going to get to our final thoughts on Wakanda Forever. I'm doing the Wakanda Forever thing, even though I don't <laughs> have to be. Uh, God bless you, Gary. God bless you. But I mean, fi- final wrap-up thoughts. I wish this movie was better. I think that there could have been a very touching in-universe short film that could have given that paid that respect to Chadwick Boseman and his legacy and they could have almost just made that like a 20 like a 30 to 40 minute tribute that's in the world of the MCU rather than like just bloating this movie out and making some of the only good parts they highlight just how boring and how uninteresting the rest of the actual MCU of it all is I, they could have made a Disney Plus tribute that would have gotten a bajillion watches on day one and then made Black Panther Wakanda Forever with a little more of a finer point on what was actually happening for two hours and 45 minutes. But, you know, we, we got what we got, and I, I will still stand by that it was a very touching tribute and the the performances of grief from the entire cast feel incredibly real because they are incredibly real and then that definitely adds a lot of the depth to the parts that i actually think were done well i'm gonna disagree with you slightly and say that i think that them dealing with the fallout of chadwick's death had to be a full film and i wish that the primary storyline had felt more connected thematically Mm. to grief and overcoming grief because that is a really compelling story source i mean there's a reason that so many films begin with the main character's loved one dying even if it's not a sequel is because it's a really interesting really moving way to explore and motivate characters and i thought that angela bassett's role ramonda's role Mm. was written from that standpoint very very well that her story felt wholly motivated by the loss of her son 
and that Shuri's motivations seem to be coming from so many different places and so out of left field and so inconsistent with the character that's been established before, and also, frankly, that she was one of the less established Wakandans mm. to begin with. I think all of that makes it feel very confusing and very muddled, and that the that it could have worked as a full tribute to Bozeman, and that they weren't able to work it in in the same way. And it doesn't get to play by Paul Walker rules because they couldn't have Bozeman in this movie at all. So I understand why, you know, there's a movie where the story doesn't matter and then it's just every, it's the it's a stupid Fast and the Furious movie for, you know, two hours and then the mm. last 20 minutes they're like, okay, now we're going to do the part where we talk about Paul Walker. And I know why they couldn't do that, but it, it, it kind of almost feels like that's what they did. I think that there is a good hour and 45 minute movie in this movie. That if they had cut yeah, a lot more probably. of the fat, focused a lot more on the characters that we care about, not introduced Ironheart. Because even her function for being brought into the film, that she invented the the vibranium detector, they could have just bypassed entirely. Yeah, me, ultimately me too. There, there is, it's, it's bloated. There's too much going on and not enough of it is either interesting enough to cling on to or just it, it, the flow of everything is is completely altered by all of these different things, including Ironheart specifically. But should we move on to our pop culture reference of the episode? Ooh, let's do it. This week's pop culture reference is the legacy of Kevin Conroy. The late Kevin Conroy was a prolific actor, known primarily for voicing Batman in various projects since 1992. Conroy's first foray into playing the character came with 1992's Batman the Animated Series where his interpretation was so acclaimed that he became the default voice of Batman, appearing in several theatrically released animated films, almost two dozen TV series, and the Arkham series of blockbuster video games. In 2016, while promoting the highly anticipated animated adaptation of the Alan Moore Batman comic The Killing Joke, Conroy came out as gay. He spoke openly and frankly about how concealing his sexuality was often necessary to navigate his career, and how the double nature of his life was one of the things that deepened his connection with the character of Batman. In June 2022, a few months before his death, as a part of the DC Comics Pride anthology, Conroy wrote Finding Batman, a comic about his experiences as a gay man and his relationship with becoming the Caped Crusader. After Conroy's death, DC Comics made the anthology containing Finding Batman free on the web. Conroy is widely regarded as the definitive Batman performer, and the reverence he had for the cultural footprint of the character brought a gravitas that has seldom been matched in comic book adaptation. I am one of the few people that is a killing joke apologist. It's not the best movie I've ever seen, and far from the best Batman thing that is, has come out, but I still think his performance in that was amazing, and, and I, everyone else in that movie, of course, too, but... I actually didn't know about finding Batman at all until right now, and, and I that has got me more curious than anything to go check that out now that I know that it's uh, free to access. It is unfortunately behind a you-gotta-sign-up-for-a-DC Comics account, which I think is really uh, dumb. Apologies to the late Kevin Conroy, but I did read a pirated PDF of, of Finding Batman back when it came out in June, uh, and... It is still worth checking out, definitely worth signing up for that DC Comics account, because it's a really, really well-written comics, and something that makes me think how much I'd like to have seen Kevin Conroy step more into writing comics, and that he could have made some really interesting, intimate work, I think not just, you know, Batman stories, right? and not that this is a Batman story, it's a story about himself. It's really, really worth reading. I think it does a better job of articulating his connection with Batman than anything you or I could say ever will. Well, that's definitely shot to the top of my reading list. Sorry, Star Wars, from a certain point of view. You're getting pushed down again. But Once again. I was, was the last time I that was it. open? I started it the other day. I, I, I like that first one pretty damn well. I, 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 more than I've ever done. But that's this is this is not a Star Wars podcast. This is a Star Wars podcast. Oh yeah, well yeah, there you go. Uh, let's go ahead and move on to Star Noirs. Now it's time for Star Noirs, where we're going to be breaking down episode ten and eleven of the Disney Plus original series Andor. 
this week we're covering, as previously mentioned, both episodes 10 and 11, and despite the, the fact that they are so different, Seamus, I just think for logistical purposes we have to kind of cover them as one, don't you? I think that's probably a good idea. I've got a lot to say. Well, I guess I've got more to say about one than the other, but I think it would be good to, to kind of m- mash them up together, considering we have one episode left of this show, and then I don't know what I'm going to do with my life for the next, like, two years until the next season comes out. And by the time this episode of the podcast comes out, the season finale will be out, so pretty crazy. Oh, I, I'm dreading it. I'm so excited, but I don't want it to be over, man, because... I mean, if we're just jumping, let's just jump right into it. Episode 10 was maybe the best thing I've ever seen. It was. We're just going full spoilers, I think. I think we have to. I have never been closer to getting a Oribesh prison tattoo that says, One Way Out, Garrett. I am. I was like crying watching that episode, dude. I cried. I, I did. I don't know if a Star Wars show or film has ever made me cry i i know that you and i talked about how we felt like andy circus was going to be this kind of obstacle to breaking out and everything and i never could have foreseen the way that they used that character in this episode and how moving his journey could be especially considering that episode 10 picks up seconds after episode 9 ends no more than 12 we thought that was the spine tingling moment and then they go right away into the plan his introduction into this escape plan that he has up until this point just fully discouraged in in place of just keeping your head down and finishing your shifts until you get to go home but my god his just in the one episode alone his role of leader in this prison, in this one room, on this one floor of this mega prison, turning into the catalyst inspired by Cassian to get people on their feet, to make it out, to, you know, one way out, Garrett. I am, uh, I think about that phrase once a day now, at the very least. It is truly inspiring. I just love this idea that this character, who is leading such a seemingly insignificant life thrown away into the darkest dark it feels like he has has no purpose left but liberation cannot only save or at least attempt to save give the opportunity of salvation to these hundreds of men but that indirectly he is the reason that the universe is saved that by freeing yeah. Cassian the rebellion is facilitated the the destruction of the death star is possible the defeating of the entire system that locked him up in that prison is attainable i've been racking my brain since this episode came out and i i want to know your thoughts on this it's it's clear what kind of prison they're in from the day that they get there they are in the ocean, they are in an underwater facility that is complete maximum security. Do you think he knew that he wasn't making it out of there? He doesn't know how to swim. He's in an ocean prison. I think part of the gut punch of that last moment where he says, I can't swim, and we'll never find out what happened to him. That would be a dream if we never find out what happens to them. If they, I want this character to have the noble existence that he holds right now. And they're not going to just like drag him back for some supplementary roles that he's eventually just going to get killed in anyway. Yeah. I think the true beauty of that moment is in the fact that it's so clear that he's been so caught up in surviving. It's been so caught up in the moment to moment adrenaline of this breakout that it's not even occurred to him up until that point that goes along with his incredibly powerful intercom takeover speech as long as you're fighting to your last breath it doesn't matter like if you make it out of the room you make it down the hallway if you make it down the hallway go up a level find the people that are lost find the people that are confused point them in the right direction get your freedom and even that is like the selflessness of his role in that prison break is, ah, God, I was just going to work depressed that day. Just, that is a purely good 
character, like in his soul. Even thinking back now when we were thinking about how Andy Serkis was more probably going to be an obstacle in this prison break. Looking back now, he cares so much for the people that are technically under his watch. In a way that, like, yes, he's very stern and he yells at them and he threatens them and he tells them to not think about anything other than just work. But, like, he gives so much of a damn about the actual people that are in his squad, in his floor, that once it gets to the, you know, the moment of him yelling attack and them making their move when the new guy's coming down the elevator, it's it, it all comes together for this character that he maybe doesn't even care too much that he will eventually face the downfall of his freedom cry that in the moment of feeling the sunshine and breathing the fresh air that it doesn't even matter for him because he's there with the people that he you know gave any kind of damn about for the first time for those people in however long they've been in this prison and it's just it makes that character so much more bittersweet in the end when Cassian's going to try to help him. He was going to him to presumably try to find some kind of solution to him to get off, and it just doesn't matter. It, it overlaps perfectly with Luthen's monologue, I am the bringer of a sunrise that I will never see. Oh, man, yeah, that was a, a great moment, too, with Lottie, the, imp- the ISB spy, and Luthen's stronghold over everyone around him that he can't find himself any comfortability or consistency or anything else he is a tool of the machine that he has built and put into place and on the flip side of that i think it's interesting how the machine of the empire their own hubris making the electrical component the thing that keeps everyone in line on a prison in the middle of an ocean and Cassian's ability to use that to Mm. overpower the electricity, to overpower the source of his containment is so brilliant and so articulate and so simple of using the hubris of your oppressor to overthrow them. Luthen's role is mirrored very well with, with the might of the empire, not to jump too far into, into episode 11, but the conversation that he has with Saw Gerrera where yes i was just about to bring that up too they talk about the idea of him being an isb agent and they talk about the idea of having to sacrifice the isb spy has brought him information that krieger is going to walk into a trap and imitation game style they're like in order to maintain our ability to know what the empire is doing we have to let him walk into that trap yeah all of that stuff i i have never been more interested in a completely new off-screen character than I have been about Krieger and his group and whatever raid that they're planning that's going to be sabotaged. I, I, I'm hoping that we maybe get to see some of that in the finale, but also, like, it's so incredibly effective to illustrate Luthen's character and even deepen Saw Gerrera's character, a character who has been in, I guess, everything in the Disney era at this point. He's in so much. He's in so much. And I, I would be just as satisfied, I guess, with that more of that sh- those shadow games that Luthen's playing just verbally, the way that he speaks about it. And I mean, there's a few inconsistencies even. Like he tells his lady companion that it's like a 50-man raid that's going to go down. And then he tells Saw, oh, it's a 25 or a 30-man raid that's going to go down. And like even in his own games he's playing games and if that's the kind of way that we're going to experience these unseen off-screen events through Luthen and through these other characters almost like how the characters who had nothing to do with Eldani are affected by and speak about Eldani throughout this series post heist I think I would be entirely satisfied and I'm again I'm thinking of this show, like we have an infinite amount of episodes in season one, and I, I know they're gonna they're gonna have to wrap up some things without me getting my entire satisfaction or my entire specifics about certain things that I can only pray that they're gonna pick back up on in season two in a way that's just as satisfying. Well, episode eleven was very much about wrapping up and paying off things that mm. we've been waiting to see the outcomes of that have been very directly interrupted by Cassian's stay in prison. I think that's a very intentional feeling of being like, oh, would, like we were in the middle of something here, and now I'm just in this prison. It shows the disruption of the Empire. Things like Luthen's interactions with Saw, the fallout from Bix's 
imprisonment and torture where she oh oh she's going through the ringer man she is messed dude she is not having a good time it is hard to watch and i really hope she she lies and gives up krieger i really hope she still got that in her partially because i think it's what the empire wants her to say and if that's the thing that gets her out of more torture that's what she should say and we have karn getting more unhinged and he knows because oh man because andor's mom died and and your best boy Seamus is devastated. <laughs> B2, oh, the most sad droid boy of all time. It broke my heart. It's essentially her dog mourning Yeah, her. I've said this since the earlier episodes where we, we haven't gotten a ton of B2 emo. Droids' sidekicks usually have a pretty big role in most Star Wars things, but this guy has kind of been on the sidelines more of Marva's, like you're saying, it's it's Marva's companion that is very docile, can't do much. Even in the episodes where he's part of an operation, he kind of flubs it up because he's not a super capable droid. But him stuttering through the sentence, I want Marva uh-huh. to Andor's buddy, I was crushed by that, man. Jeez. At the end of the day, everybody's coming to Ferrix. Everybody's coming for the funeral because Karn is coming and all of our ISB friends are coming. Andor is on his way back. There was a scene with Vel's girlfriend, who is undercover, serving an equally undercover Imperial spy. Uh The people who want to kill Andor in every single way are coming. Luthen's going to get word. He's going to show up in his badass ship that I didn't see coming. With his kyber crystal (laughs) lightsaber... Like yeah. defense uh, countermeasures and the and the shrapnel ejector that just shreds the imperial tractor beam thing. I I thought that was kick ass, truly. And I I I have a for whatever reason I feel like whatever credits from Aldani that Cassian is holding on to, I feel like somehow it's gonna make its way into. Mon Mothma's hands is like a that's gonna aid her problem, aid the rebellion in a backwards way. It's gonna aid him in a, in a way that's he's setting up his own future. Maybe it's hmm. he's gonna give up that money in exchange for Luthen and his goons to, you know, not murder him and so, to some capacity. There there's gonna be a lot of weird red string to follow. I feel like with this last showdown on Ferrix. Well, Mon Mothma is the only person who doesn't seem to be in a trajectory towards Ferrix, and I'm very curious to see how she plays into the finale. I think we haven't talked a lot about Genevieve O'Reilly over the last few episodes because there's been so many other things to talk about, but she is outstanding. Amazing. Her relationship with Vel is is super interesting, and it brings out different sides of both of those characters that we don't get to see in any other moment. I like this idea that Mon Mothma's daughter is some kind of religious fundamentalist. Yeah, that was a little weird, huh? But it also it plays right into the idea that I've been having that it's not even going to matter what decisions she makes for her family in the end. They're already in the trajectory of like imperial subordination and so steeped in the high-class Coruscant lifestyle that even if she is finding these moral obstacles that she is struggling with so hard, you know, marrying off her daughter to a crime lord's son so that she can launder money so that she's not caught by the Imperials. It seems like her husband isn't going to care. He's going to be like, yeah, marry her off. And the daughter seems like she's into this more traditional viewpoint of how her life is supposed to go in terms of the daughter of somebody from this culture. It's her family is slipping away so swiftly And even though she's struggling to maintain that composure and that structure within her own family while building this rebellion, that ultimately her hand is going to be forced by no one else than her actual family themselves. And she alludes to having some kind of plan in episode 11, some like her own version of a one way out. And I'm very curious about what that's going to look like. I don't know if that's going to be doubling down on the rebellion. I don't know if that's going to be betraying Luthen, which I think would be a really interesting way for his character oh. to kind of fizzle out. I don't think that's the way it's going because we would know that about that character, I think, otherwise. But it could be her little speech that she does in the Senate before she runs off with with Mm. our friends on the ghost in Star Wars Rebels. She's really the talkiest part of the show. She's the least action-oriented. But, like, when you boil her scenes down to, like, her talking to her old friend about the arranged marriage stuff with the creepy money guy and just her performances of slowly fading 
of you know desperate hope for being brought out of the danger that she's in to facing the facts that her own choices in joining this rebellion and aiding and funding and doing all these behind the scenes things it's ultimately she now has to face her life within this war and the war that she is starting and that's it, it's fascinating to see every single time there's a a very dry coruscant dinner party at her house i'm i'm loving it but should we should we walk on over and and save the rec center let's do it Now it's time to save the rec center, where we bring you our weekly recommendations. Seamus, what do you bring into the table this week? Well, this was, I, I didn't want to drop this during news, but I just got my hands on the Shout Factory special edition Blu-ray release of Escape from New York. Look with at that. All, Look with at all that. the little goodies and extras that come along with it. Like I said, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. There's so many special features in there that I am I'm dying to dig into. I want to really I listen into that commentary between Kurt and John. You know, I'm on a first name basis with them both. You know, obviously, Kurt Russell, friend of the show, <laughs> of course, friend of the show. It's so good. I I guess I don't know if I'm specifically rec centering this Blu-ray or whatever, <laughs> but this movie, if you have not seen it. I truly believe to be maybe the pinnacle of 80s action insanity. It's maybe the weirdest movie I've ever seen, and that includes a lot of other John Carpenter, Kurt Russell features that are, are just also incredible, but Mumble. somehow <laughs> Mumble, baby. somehow not as weird and enjoyable and somehow dark as Escape from New York is. I think Kurt Russell is incredible. Ernest Borgine as cabbie is iconic, throwing Molotovs at the roof of his cab. <laughs> Just oh, it, what a picture! I, I've seen that movie enough times to pinpoint the moment in the shot where the helicopters are coming in in the third act that one of the extras doesn't move out in time and gets trucked by one of the other extras to get out of frame. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but I look don't, for that. But that's awesome. Oh, I look for it every time, and it's always funny. But I guess just if you haven't seen this movie, what are you even doing listening to this show specifically? And if you have, just go rewatch it again. It's so, it's timeless. It's perfect. And I guess it would be fairly in time for whatever reboot thing is happening with 20th Century Fox. I've been eyeing that Shout Factory Blu-ray for many years now, Seamus, and I'm glad to hear that you've got your hands on it. Oh yeah, I'll bring it around. We'll just listen to the commentary track together like it's a podcast, like it's silently a podcast. on your couch. I I do love commentary tracks, and they have some of the great ones. Those two, they they're just little buddies. But what do you got to save the rec center this week, Garrett? I've got a very weird rec center this week. <laughs> Ooh, okay, GQ released a new profile of James Cameron anticipating the oh. upcoming release of Avatar The Way of Water. And it is exactly as cuckoo bananas <laughs> as you would like it to be because the brilliance of James Cameron now is that he is still a huge egomaniac who thinks he is right about everything, except he's <laughs> mellowed enough. He He's able to acknowledge now that, you know, he's like, I used to be a real jerk. Back when I was, you know, in the 80s and 90s making all my crazy movies. And now now I'm nicer. I'm nicer. Guy. I'm a nicer guy. But also, I'm right about everything. And I am God. <laughs> and it's, that sounds about right. It's endearing, I think, now. It's gone from being, like, off-putting to endearing. And you know how much I love Cameron's work. Anybody who listens to this show knows how much I love Cameron's work. I'm very excited for Avatar The Way of Water. I have a renewed zest for Avatar. Honestly, I probably like Avatar more now than I ever did in the in the 13 years since its initial release. <laughs> right on, right on. It's just a hilarious read. It's an absolutely great profile. The writing is terrific. It was written by Zach Barron over at GQ, and I it has so much personality packed into it. The interviews with, with Ancillary subjects are are very insightful and very well deployed it's it's just a great feature on one of the most interesting directors of all time i was going to say the 20th <laughs> century or the 21st century 
he's definitely but, he's definitely up there. I'd say the return of James Cameron, comma box office king, is my rec center this week. <laughs> awesome. I, I think we why don't we we should tweet a link to that or something to because yes, I. Out. Tweet a link and or just text me a link because I would love to give that a read. I'll shoot it to you right after we're done recording. Awesome. Dope, dope, dope. But that wraps us up for this week's episode of Pop Culture Reference. If you want to reach the show, you can tweet us at PCR underscore podcast. Find us also at PCR underscore podcast on TikTok and Instagram. You can email us at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. Comment, like, subscribe, whatever platform you're on. Please engage with us. It really helps the show out. Next week, we are covering not only the Andor season finale for the season finale of Star Noirs, but we are covering Avatar The Way of Water. Very excited. That's one of our most anticipated movies of the year, I think, Seamus. Oh, I fully agree with that, dude. I'm super jazzed to get into it with you next week. Adios, amigos. Adios, amigos.